So we've got two weeks left in our Prosper the City series. Today we're going to be looking at idolatry in the city. And next week we'll be looking at set apart in the city. So I hope you guys have enjoyed the different community organizations that we brought in every week. I hope it's exposed to you to all the great things that are happening in the city of New Orleans. But this morning we're going to be looking at a topic in the book of Acts, chapter 14. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 8. Now I have to confess to you that I spent most of my life thinking that I understood biblically what idolatry was, only to come to find out within the last two or three years that I completely missed it. One of the books that was revolutionary in my thinking on this subject of idolatry is a book by a pastor that you probably come to know I reference pretty regularly, Tim Keller, who wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he outlines many of the ways we as American Christians struggle with idolatry. So, before we get to the passage in Acts, I want to take you back to what the Ten Commandments actually say about idolatry in Acts chapter 20. Beginning in verse 4, this is what Moses receives when he's on Mount Sinai, okay? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now here's what I did for the majority of my life. I looked at this commandment, which is the number two commandment out of the ten, and I focused on the very first phrase. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. And I thought to myself, well, I've got that covered. I don't have any statues in my house that I'm worshiping. Therefore, I must have figured out the solution to avoiding idolatry. Only to find out that that is just one small segment of what that verse actually says. You see, idolatry is not just some carved image that we might have in our yard or in our house, but it's anything that makes us worship the created over the creator. And when you begin to think about idolatry that way, you realize how many things in our culture that we actually worship. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 14 this morning. Beginning in verse 8, this is what Luke writes to us. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. 
And when the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So we have here in Lystra a picture of idolatry. Paul and Barnabas arrive on the scene and they heal a crippled man. A wonderful miracle. And yet the people give credit to two false gods in the process. Barnabas, they call Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. Paul, they call Hermes, the god who is in charge of commerce and trade and merchants and is the chief speaker among all the gods. So it would make sense that Zeus and Hermes are identified here with Barnabas and Paul. But yet, they were giving credit to the two people who actually had nothing to do with the miracle. False gods exist all around us. And they're not always Zeus and Hermes and Apollo and other gods that we traditionally think of. They manifest themselves in all sorts of ways in our lives. So one of the first things we have to do is we have to identify what those idols are in our life. Now I'm going to give you some examples of common idols in our day and age. Relationships. Career. Also, sports, which is hard for me to say. Sports can be an idol. Technology can be an idol. So let's start unpacking these. When we think of relationships, many of you are thinking, well, of course if I have an unhealthy relationship or toxic relationships in my life, of course those can be idols. But what about the relationships that are good, that you have with spouse, with children, with parents? Yes, even those can be idols in our life if we elevate them to a position above God. Career. Well, of course, if we work 80 hours a week and we neglect our family and our church, of course that could be an idol. But what about those of us who work in the nonprofit sector? What about pastors? Surely, we're not guilty of idolatry in our career. Except if you were to ask yourself this question tomorrow morning if your job was taken from you, could you still find purpose and fulfillment in your life? And if the answer is no, you might have identified an idol in your life. Something 
that's giving you purpose and fulfillment that does not come from God himself can be an idol. Now here's the one that hurts me the most. What if we have more of our sports team's roster memorized than we do the word of God? What if we spend more time reading articles on our favorite sports team than we spend in the word on a weekly basis? You see how easy it can be to begin to actually think through the idols that we have in our life? It's difficult. And yet we see here that the people of Lystra identify with Paul and Barnabas not because they performed the miracle in the name of Jesus Christ, but because they thought they performed it in the name of Zeus and Hermes. One of the greatest tennis players of the 70s and 80s, many of you will know her name, Chris Evert, as she was contemplating retirement, I want you to look at what she said about the game of tennis and the place that it had in her life. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by me being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause, in order to have identity. And you, when you begin to think of idolatry as the things that you most identify with in life, what you realize is it's much larger than just a carved statue. So after you've identified whatever that idol is in your life, I've given you some examples this morning. There's a lot more we could have covered. Once you've identified what they are, you have to turn away from the vain things. Paul and Barnabas, they run out and they tear their garments and they say, men, what are you doing? You are giving credit to us. We are men just like you. They grabbed him and they said, pay attention. We are not the God here. Jesus is the one performing this miracle. So once we've identified what those idols are, we have to be very, very sensitive to the Holy Spirit and ask him, what are the things in my life that I am elevating above God? And then we have to turn away from him. That's the solution, is repentance. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit can convict you and make you aware of that idol. Now it's interesting, Paul and Barnabas here, when they approach the people of Lystra, talking to a Greco-Roman audience here. Now if this was a group of Jews, then Paul and Barnabas would have just flipped open the prophets and the scriptures and they would have said, you see how Jesus is the one that all of these prophets are pointing to. But they don't do that here. Because when they went into this Greek context, they had no idea about the Jewish scriptures. So they appeal to creation. Because every Greek god was attributed to some aspect of creation. Zeus was the god of the sky and the god of thunder. And so what they do is they identify with their audience... Now, there's a fancy word for this that we use. The word is contextualization. 
It's taking the message of Jesus and making it relevant to the people that you're speaking to. This goes on all over the world. And let me give you an example of this. Many of the ways, for those of you in this room that are believers in Jesus Christ, and you grew up being trained on how to share your faith with others, you most likely assume four things about most people that you come into contact with. Number one, belief in God. Number two, an absolute standard of what is right and wrong. Number three, the concept of sin. And number four, belief in an afterlife. These concepts, if you grew up in church, almost every method of evangelism that you learned assumed those four things about people. Whether it was evangelism explosion, raise your hand if you're familiar with that one, faith, steps to peace with God, four spiritual laws, whatever tract you learned or whatever method you practiced, Almost all of those were based on those four assumptions about people. So they took generic religious beliefs and they pointed those beliefs to Jesus. So all they did was connect the dots to beliefs that people already had. But what happens when you can't connect those dots anymore? Because people don't have those basic beliefs that many of us in this room have taken for granted. That's the concept of contextualization. Being able to communicate to an increasingly secular society why Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if they don't believe in God, if they don't believe in sin, if they don't believe in an absolute standard of what is right and wrong and an afterlife, then we've got a lot of work to do before we can really even get Jesus into the conversation. Contextualization. This is what Paul and Barnabas do with the Greco-Roman context where they are. And then you have to know what the solution to idols really is. I've said this before, but you cannot eliminate an idol from your life. Now, I know you're thinking, well, this really gives me no hope today as I leave. But you can't eliminate an idol. All you can do is replace it. You elevate God to his proper position. That is the solution to idolatry. So whatever it is, career, relationship, hobby, favorite sports team, as difficult as that is for me to say, God must reign supreme Over all of those things. And it's hard. And it requires discipline. But the solution is Jesus. A few weeks ago I was having dinner here on a Wednesday night with my family as I do almost every Wednesday night. My wife Ashley came and got me and she said, Hey, your daughter has done some artwork that I'd like you to see. So I got up from my seat and I walked over And she had drawn with Sharpie all over the wall. This was her artwork. So the next day, I grabbed a pack of magic erasers. And for about the next 45 minutes, scrubbed that wall. At the end of the 45 minutes, I was not only dripping wet, but I had tendonitis in my right elbow from the constant motion back and forth. 
And if you look closely, or if you go back in there today and look, most of the stain is gone. But if you look very, very, very close, you'll see that original remains of her artwork. And I'm afraid that many of us, myself included, think that the solution to our idols is religious activity. Worship attendance, being in Bible studies, praying, and those are all disciplines that are absolutely crucial to our walk with Christ. But they do not make us right with God. You see, if you look very closely at that wall, there will always be the remains of the original artwork that my daughter did that day. I was not able to completely fix the blemish. In the same way, oftentimes we come to worship, we engage in Bible studies, we go out and we serve people, thinking that this makes us right with God. But we know that the only one that can remove the blemish perfectly from our heart is Jesus. And that every work will not satisfy the requirements that God has for us. So I beg of you, as I beg myself this morning, even though we know that Bible study and prayer and worship attendance are so important to your walk with Christ, they do not make you right with Christ. It's only by trusting that what Jesus did on the cross can save you from your sin. That's the only thing that can make you more free than you've ever been before. Nothing else matters. So the solution to idolatry is simple. It's Jesus. It's focusing your attention on the one God who can save your soul. And then sadly this morning, we need to realize that you and I need to be prepared for a constant daily fight. Notice how this passage ends. Paul, a very eloquent speaker, Barnabas, a very eloquent speaker, are not able to convince these people to not make the sacrifices to them. They do it anyways. This is a reminder to all of us that every single day, just as soon as you replace one idol, I promise you, there's another one waiting to creep up in your life. Maybe you conquer the career idol. Maybe you conquer the relationship idol. And then out of nowhere, the religious activity idol makes its way into your life. We cannot ever completely eradicate idolatry from our life. Because we know at our core, no matter what Jesus does to save us, that sin nature remains. And we will always look to outside things to give us fulfillment and purpose. Even if we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There will always be things that pop up that we think give us fulfillment only to find out one day when it's taken away from us that it never could provide what we thought it could. So what do we do? There doesn't seem to be any solution to the problem in this passage. 
Paul and Barnabas are not the heroes of this story. They fail. So how do we go about dealing with idolatry? Well, I want to give you four questions today. And I want you to write these down. Ways that we can ponder and identify and think about the areas in our life that we know can be idols. These are not original to me. These come straight out of the book that I referenced earlier, Counterfeit Gods, which I recommend everybody read. Here are the four questions that you can ask yourself. Number one, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. So you're sitting on the couch on a Saturday afternoon, you've done all your chores, the family's out of the house, it's just you relaxing. Where do your thoughts drift towards? It could be that that's an idol in your life. Here's the danger of idolatry. They don't have to be bad things. We should all have relationships. We should all have a career. We should all have a hobby that gives us satisfaction and enjoyment. God has designed all of those things for us to have. So inherently, idols are not always negative things. They can be good things that we allow to get out of whack in our priorities. Number two, very simply, examine where you spend your money. What does Jesus tell us? For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now, of course, we have bills, mortgage, tuition, all sorts of things that demand our money. What about your discretionary income? Are those things that you look at and you say, you know what, I've devoted too much of my finances to something that in the end does not matter. Number three, what is your daily functional salvation? And what do I mean by that? Of course, we all know, and we confess this as a church, that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. So we know that's really what salvation is. But what is your daily functional salvation? What do you really look for on a daily basis to give you purpose and fulfillment? Let's say you have a prayer request that you bring before God, and he doesn't answer it. What's your response to God then? If your response is one of being upset and angry with God, then maybe the request that you had was actually your functional salvation. Maybe God has given you a vision of something that you think he wants you to accomplish, only to find out later that it was not actually his vision, it was your vision. Are you able to continue on in life in spite of that? Because if you're not, maybe the vision you had was the functional salvation in your life and not Jesus himself. And then number four, examine your uncontrollable emotions. What are the things that anger you? What are the things in your life that scare you? And if you were to spend time thinking why you get angry and why you get scared, maybe you'll come to find out that you're placing way too much of a priority on those things that actually at the end of the day do not matter. 
Maybe you're spending so much time angry at an individual only to realize that that individual is actually the one that you're worshiping and not God. So, as we think about idolatry this morning, it's much larger than a carved image. It's anything that we worship or anything that we find purpose or fulfillment in that is not God himself. So examine your heart this morning and ask yourself, what are the things that I'm placing priority in that really at the end of the day mean nothing? You know, as Paul and Barnabas later on in this chapter, after they've discussed with the Greeks and the Romans, they go and the Jews actually stone them and run them out of town. But the people at Lystra don't learn their lesson. Because they go ahead and they give sacrifices to Zeus and Hermes anyways. Idolatry can be dangerous. It can affect our relationship with God. But ultimately the solution to any idol in our life is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So for those of us in this room who have made a decision to follow Jesus. Let's reprioritize our commitment to him. And for those of you that are still unsure if Jesus really is the God of the universe, we would love to talk more with you about that. Let's pray this morning. God, I come before you and I just confess that there are things every single day that take priority in my life over you. And I ask your forgiveness for it. God, I pray that we would all reprioritize our commitments, that we would examine the areas that we know we're giving too much time to, that are pulling us away from you. So God, collectively, we want to cast down the idols this morning in our life. We want to replace them with increased focus on you. God, we thank you for being a God who is patient with us, who forgives us, who always receives us back with open arms. So God, during this time of response, speak to us. I pray that your spirit would search our hearts, convict us if we need convicting. And let's spend this time worshiping you for being the God of all creation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.